Welcome to Passive Investing School, where you'll learn how to get started on your journey for investing in multifamily apartments as a passive investor. You'll hear tips and case studies from actual real estate investors sharing their wisdom with you so you don't make the same mistakes they did and so you can be set up for success with your investments. Here's your host, Chris Tracy. I've got Brian Burke on here today from Praxis Capital. How's it going, Brian? It's going great, Chris. Yeah, so I was chatting with Brian on Bigger Pockets, and if you're not familiar with that website, you really should go and check it out. Brian writes a lot of awesome material on there, you know, so I thought it was a no-brainer to have him come on to the show today. So let's just jump right into it. Brian, tell us about yourself. I appreciate you having me on the show, Chris, and it's an honor to be here. Um, you know, I, I, I think the reason you asked me to be here is probably to try to see how much of my uh, 29 and a half years of real estate experience you can extract out in a, in a short podcast. And I'll, I'll do my best to, to deliver for you. But uh, I started out like many people in single family, uh, buying, fixing and reselling homes. I bought my first house using no money down with a seller financing the uh, carry back for the down payment. And you know, my second uh, property I bought, I basically cashed advanced a stack of credit cards to get the money to uh, to buy the house and and then fix it up and resell it, and just grew from there. And uh, ultimately, I, uh, I I ended up growing uh, the firm into uh, doing a couple dozen houses a year by fixing and reselling using money I raised from some coworkers when I, I quit my job finally, and that was. Uh, about 18 years ago, and I've been uh, raising money for real estate projects ever since. Uh, you know, again, after the after the market collapsed, I took that couple dozen a house a year operation up to over 120 houses a year in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then uh, started buying rentals, and we ended up buying about 115 or 120 rental houses in the Bay Area at the bottom of the market, which was a phenomenal trade, and then. Uh, you know, then just focused mostly on multifamily since then. So, you know, we've acquired over 2,000 apartment units. We have over 500 units in contract currently that we're closing on uh, in the next couple of months and, um, you know, and looking for more behind that. So, so really we've, you know, kind of gone from a local single family player to a national multifamily player. It's taken 30 years to get there, but, you know, all, all good things will come in time. <laughs> Okay, Brian, you've been in the game for a while. You have a lot of holdings. Tell us, um, what are your thoughts on the future of multifamily investing for this upcoming year here now in 2019? Well, you know, everybody wants to know what inning we're in. You know, they, you know, are we in the seventh inning or the fifth inning or the ninth or where are we? And, you know, my, you know, my take on the market is that they're, the inning system really doesn't uh, doesn't work as a measurement for real estate cycles because you never know when games go into overtime or get rained out in the middle, and that can happen at any point. So you know we're buying everything today with the assumption that there's going to be an adverse market cycle during our hold period. Uh, if it doesn't come, then we can perform even better. But we always are planning for it in the beginning now. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a severe downturn. I don't think we're going to see a 2008, 2009 style um, real estate collapse where you're going to be able to buy property at half of what you were buying it for two years prior. But 
you might see a leveling off in pricing. Uh, you might see a leveling off in rent growth. You might see a slight uptick in vacancies. Those kinds of things are, are just normal ebbs and flows of an apartment market. And we haven't seen the, you know, the adverse ebb of that flow in a few years. So, uh, you know, don't be surprised when it gets here. But having said that, I think that multifamily has a long runway left ahead of it. I just saw a graph the other day that was really kind of interesting showing that real estate in the States is only like just a little over 100% of the value that it was in the year 2005 or something, or year 2000 or 2005. But you look at like Australia, it was like 230% or just some massive, massive number. Uh, and so, you know, when you think that we're topping out, uh, it fails to account for the fact that you know, markets outside of the U.S. have been moving upward for a very, very long time. And there's a possibility ours could do the same thing. Okay, so with that being said, talking about markets, what markets do you like right now, Brian, in the United States? And any markets that you do like, why do you like those markets? You know, we, we uh, are buying currently in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and Florida. Uh, those, those are the markets we currently own. We're, most of our recent acquisitions have been in Atlanta and Florida. Uh, I like both of those markets. I still like Arizona. I'm a little bit less uh, favoring Texas these days. Uh, I like Denver, Salt Lake City, uh, the Carolinas. All of those markets, I think, are good markets and have a lot of runway left. Uh, Texas has been a strong market. It's been one of the national leaders for a very long time, but I've, I'm beginning to just have some feeling that some of that is running its course, uh, or it's certainly that cycle is more mature than cycles in some other markets that have younger cycles, such as Florida, for example. So placing a little bit less emphasis on the Texas markets and, and more so on other uh, Southeastern markets primarily. I think Florida is probably one of the strongest markets in the country right now, uh, mm. especially uh, central and northern Florida markets. Uh, southern Florida market, maybe not quite as much, but still definitely a strong market, yeah. Okay, forgive my geography here, but central and northern Florida, would that be like Orlando? Because I know that like southern Florida is like Miami and stuff like that. Northern would be Jacksonville. Uh, you know, Gainesville, we also uh, are, you know, all the way down to on the southern end, Fort Myers, uh, Orlando, Tampa, uh, you know, being the, being the major markets that we're looking at. Okay, cool. And as far as Georgia, I know a lot of people have been in love with Atlanta for a while. Do you think the ship has sailed with Atlanta or do you still think there's a little bit of runway left there? I think there's a lot of runway left there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a uh, to me it's one of the top southeast markets. You know, Atlanta and Florida are really the 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 top areas right now. If you look at you know population inward migration, uh, job growth, household formation, uh, rent growth, occupancy levels, all those things are very very favorable. Atlanta does have some risk from new development and construction absorption ratios, maybe getting a little bit out of whack in some sub markets, but. You know, that, that is sub-market specific. A lot of the uh, major development is geographically concentrated. And, 
you know, if you're sticking to markets that have a lesser degree of new supply coming online, uh, there's still some, some pretty significant demand in those markets. And then Texas is another one too. It seems like everybody and their brothers looking for a multifamily apartment building in Texas. Any specific markets you like in, in Texas or just the whole state in general? I know that, that uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area is pretty hot. People have been looking at that for, for a while. Nothing excites me about Texas anymore. Uh, you know, I, I think back to, let's see, it's 2019 now. I remember in 2010 and 2011, everybody was buying multifamily in Texas. Mm -hmm. And, and you used to go to a, you know, I, I went to a, you know, apartment boot camp or something back then just to check it out. And, you know, people, they go around the room and they, you know, people stand up and give their, you know, 30 second pitch of who they are and where they're doing deals. And you'd get a, you'd have a room of, you know, 250 people and 75% of them are, I'm buying multifamily in Texas. And that was like almost 10 years ago. And here we are, and it's the same story. The only <laughs> difference is now, instead of everybody, it's everybody and their brother and their cousin and their friends are all buying in Texas. So it's just so overbought that I'm, I'm just finding we're connecting better elsewhere. It doesn't mean that the market isn't good. The market is good. Uh, it's just, you know, we're looking for where we can have a, a better hit rate, where we can be more successful without having to be the highest bidder of, you know, all the highest bidders. And, you know, we had this, uh, we were buying a lot in Houston for a while. And then, you know, you couldn't get anything in Dallas because everybody was buying in Dallas. And then all of a sudden, you know, nobody could get anything in Dallas. So all the Dallas buyers go to Houston and start bidding up the Houston deals like the <laughs> Dallas deals. And, and so you're like, all right, I'm out of here. You know, after you, after you lose out on your 10th deal by some 1031 guy with two weeks left to identify his asset and is, you know, bidding $2 million over everybody else, you're like, let's just go spend our time somewhere else. And then we've got Arizona. What are your thoughts on Arizona? What do you like over there? Do you like uh, Tucson, uh, Phoenix, or what are your thoughts in that market? Well, you know, Arizona's beginning to suffer a little bit from Texas disease where you're getting, you know, too many buyers in that market. Uh, but I still think there's deals to be had there. The cycle there is definitely younger than the Texas cycle. Uh, the question will be, will it be as enduring and long lasting as the Texas cycle? That jury still remains to be seen there. Uh, you know, I think Tucson as an example, you know, it's, it was so much like ignored for so long that, it's probably got some, you know, some, some real good legs under it. Although from just an economic indicator standpoint of looking at, you know, job growth and household formation and inward migration, a little bit less, um, a little bit less enthusiastic from that standpoint, although the rent growth there has been really substantial. Interestingly enough, I'm not sure exactly why, but we're really more favoring the Phoenix Metro uh, challenge with the Phoenix Metro is it's almost performing to perfection. You know, their vacancy rate is extremely low and um, their economic vacancy rates are, are really, really low. And when you operate like I do, which is to underwrite for a potential um, adverse market cycle, it makes it difficult to, uh, you know, underwrite with that level of safety in a market that's performing so perfectly and mm. still get deals. Nice overview of the markets there, Brian. Uh, that was pretty awesome. I love the baseball analogies, by the way. Uh, who's your favorite baseball team? 
I don't even know anything. Uh, the 49ers or uh, maybe the <laughs> San Jose Sharks. I, I actually, I know nothing about sports. All I do is work. So uh, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to think of something. Uh, th- think of a good player, I guess. Okay, cool. I'm from Connecticut, so you're officially a Red Sox fan. I have to snatch you up before uh, a Yankee fan comes and takes you away. Hey, I'm a free agent. I can be uh, any, any team can be my favorite. It doesn't even matter what sport it is because I won't know the difference anyway. Bye, Bryce. <laughs> Good stuff. Let's switch gears here now. And let's say a potential passive investor meets you and they are considering investing in one of your opportunities. Uh, what questions should they be asking you before they collaborate with you on a deal? You know, this investors need to understand the uh, management team behind the investment. And uh, so often, I think people make a decision to invest in something uh, just because they, you know, they saw a podcast or, you know, they've kind of seen some marketing or, or whatever it is. And they, they don't take a lot of time to ask difficult questions to really understand the sponsor's uh, uh, skill, their experience, and most importantly, how they underwrite that deal and, you know, how they, uh, how they're, uh, you know, placing capital preservation first. And uh, it's, there's just, there's just a lot of kind of deep dive on the sponsor that people should take. And what does that look like? Well, you should ask about, Economic vacancy, for example, is a is an interesting question that a lot of people don't understand and don't get into the weeds too much when they're uh, when they're looking to invest in a deal. But it's enormously important. I learned this lesson the hard way as a young syndicator many many years ago. And you know, there's uh, there's not just the physical vacancy to consider. There's things like residents that don't pay, so debt loss. There's loss to lease, which is the difference between the rent that you're actually getting and the rent that you think you should be getting. Uh, there's concessions. Uh, all of these things uh, take money away from your, uh, from your gross income. And you'll see so often sponsors ignore those economic vacancy uh, factors and just say, well, uh, you know, we're going to underwrite to 5% physical vacancy factor and that's it and they call it good and one of the most obvious things to look at is if you look at a comparison between the income that the property was achieving in the previous 12 months versus what the sponsor is projecting to achieve in the first year you can usually spot instantly whether sponsors are taking economic vacancy seriously because you'll see a significant jump in income in the very first year it's physically impossible to achieve that so if they're, you know, if the sponsor is showing that, you know, that first year income is probably going to be not much better, if at all better than it was in the trailing 12 months, or maybe even shows that it's worse, then you can imagine that they're probably taking those things into consideration. So having conversations with sponsors about how they're approaching uh, that first year income and economic vacancy is a conversation that a lot of investors don't have. That's an interesting point that you bring that up. Because your average person, let's say, you know, um, a chiropractor, or a, a doctor, a teacher, uh, someone who works in an office, the chiropractor comes along and says, here, Brian, you know, here's some capital, just put it to work for me, you know, just treat me better than the stock market. 
And you know, the average person that works a day job and they don't want to be bothered with the management part of it and you know, they're just looking for that passive invest, investment, you know, it's a good point that you bring up is you know, that people should have a basic level of understanding and education about these investments. That way they can, when they detect some of these red flags that you're pointing out, you know, maybe they do have the capability to call bullshit on someone and say, you know, well, what's going on here with these numbers? And, you know, to kind of uh, safeguard themselves and have some level of understanding. Um, is that safe to say, uh, Brian, that, you know, it's, it's best if, if people are, uh, that way they're not susceptible and they're not um, totally naive to a lot of these uh, pitfalls that, uh, that could take place? Everybody has somewhere to be, right? I mean, you know, after we get done with this podcast, we probably have to be somewhere. And to get somewhere, you have to use some kind of transportation to get there, right? And so, you know, you're probably going to jump in your car and drive there. And so would it be reasonable to say that, yeah, you know, you jump in the car and you just hope that the best works out? Or do you say, hey, before I even ever get behind the wheel of a car, I'm going to study the rules of the road and at least understand that when I come to a four-way stop, who's supposed to go next and what the difference between a red and a green light are to at least kind of have some level of assurance that you're going to get to where you're trying to get to. Um, is a, would you think that's a good idea? Yeah. Uh, you know, I do. I think it's a good idea. And, and I don't think it's a good idea to just put blind faith into the syndicator to say, you know, uh, this real estate investment is the vehicle you're going to use to accomplish the objective you're looking to accomplish and just put blind faith in to say, it's just going to happen for you. As long as you invest in this real estate investment, it's going to happen for you without having any level of awareness of the risks that are associated with it. And, and this is such an important point that, you know, when the Securities and Exchange Commission was created in the, in the uh, Securities Act of 1933 was enacted, they recognized that uh, there were investments out there that were potentially hazardous to your health. And to combat that, they, uh, they formed uh, some regulatory framework that said, in order to invest in one of these so-called private offerings, uh, you have to be an accredited investor, which meant that you had to meet net worth and income requirements. And the assumption was that if you met those net worth and income requirements, you only got there because you had some financial knowledge that enabled you to get to that, that point in life. And you could apply that financial and investment knowledge to analyzing your private offering investments to make sure that you didn't make a bad decision. Now, to the extent that you're not an accredited investor and you still want to participate, at least you have to be what's called a sophisticated investor, which means that you have to have had at least enough level and of knowledge and experience uh, to assure that you're not making a mistake, or at least that you're underwriting it yourself enough to know what you're getting yourself into. So this is right in the Securities Act that you have to be sophisticated or accredited to invest in private offerings. And uh, people don't take that very seriously sometimes. And they think, you know, hey, like I said, I, you know, I saw this guy on uh, infomercial and he's got this, uh, these real estate investments and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in it. Or I went to a crowdfunding website 
I looked at a grid of 20 different investment opportunities and I picked the one that had the highest projected IRR and clicked the mouse <laughs> and put my 25 grand in. Uh, that's just not enough to ensure that you're actually going to make it to your destination without colliding with a bus. I love these analogies that you have because you always describe these different topics that we talk about. And uh, I love the baseball analogy. I love the, um, the driving a car analogy. And the other analogy you had, you were talking about, for example, if you're going to go shopping at a store, you wouldn't get a bunch of clothes and then go up to the counter and then say, try to figure out, well, well how am I going to pay for all this? It was a uh, kind of like the conundrum of, of what should come first, the deals or the investors. So let's segue into the next question now. Um, talking about potential pitfalls that a passive investor should watch out for. What are, what are the top mistakes and pitfalls and traps that you're seeing that, that people should be uh, weary of? Going back to the analogy with driving a car, you know, are, are people, are you seeing people just blowing off stop signs, driving in the wrong direction, speeding, swerving all over the road, or uh, what are you seeing nowadays? You know, you're seeing all of that stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, my, uh, my senior VP in charge of investor relations here at the office, he, he popped in here the other day with a, an, an offering from, a, from another uh, real estate sponsor and was like, you know, one of our investors is looking at investing in this deal. Can you look at it and tell me, you know, what you think uh, about this? Because he's asking for our, for our feedback on, you know, whether this is a good deal to invest in or not. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'll take a few minutes and just look at it. And it was, it was one red flag after another. Oh my God. And yeah, it, it saddens me because, you know, I, I look at it and I'm just thinking to myself, I feel like I'm sitting in a field watching a herd of cattle, you know, heading into the slaughterhouse. Uh, and I just, I feel for the investors because they're, they're signing up for a program uh, to that's expected to deliver on some promises that will be impossible to deliver upon. And it's, you know, there's, I'll give you a, uh, an interesting example. Uh, in fact, I'll give you two, just because I like to under-promise and over-deliver. No pressure. We could do a second interview. Maybe it'll come to you while you're on the beach. We'll see how it flows. You never know. I might think of some other crazy story. We were looking at this, uh, at this deal, and uh, it, uh, there was something off with the numbers. And this is, this is a, a deal we were looking to acquire. There was something off with the numbers. And, and I said, you know, this just doesn't look right. I said, there's, there's no way. I said, this is a, a portfolio of like 20 properties that was on the market. It was a few thousand units. And uh, they were, this was one of the assets we were, we were looking at. I'm like, there's no way this guy's an idiot. You know, they've, they've acquired, you know, this looks like probably $200 million in real estate. Uh, so I, something is something's just wrong. Let's try to figure out, you know, what we're missing in, in these financials and, and why they look the way they do. And so we get on a phone call with the broker to talk about the story behind the deal. That's always a question I like to ask, um, you know, the sellers or the brokers is tell me the backstory behind the deal. The story is almost as important as the numbers. And he tells me the story and the story basically goes like uh, this guy, he was in another industry made made his very first multifamily investment like two or three years ago 
within 18 months created his own property management company to take management in-house and literally scaled to like, you know, 2000 or 3000 units, bought like 30 properties in two years. And all of it with, you know, investor money and institutional uh, investor partners. And, you know, I have absolutely no idea how he managed to pull that off. But nevertheless, after having done so, they had a revolving door of senior management and their uh, management company. And they had no idea what they were doing and just completely, you know, it was a boondoggle. They were mismanaging all the real estate. And it was so bad that when uh, a new manager took over the property, they uh, went to the eviction company to say, here's a, you know, a set of evictions for a, a bunch of tenants that aren't paying. Uh, can you start the eviction process? And the eviction company said, no, because you guys haven't paid your bill. <laughs> so when, when the property isn't paying their eviction company, you know, something is really wrong. And, and you know, so the story went. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's that kind of a thing where, you know, inexperience was just disastrous and growing too fast. It was just an absolute disaster. So that's one. Uh, Let's see, I said I was gonna give you a second one, didn't I? Uh, I'll have to think about what it was now. See, I, I'm over-promising and under-delivering. I'll probably come to me before we finish this call and I'll give you, a, I'll just integrate it into something else. Okay, so Brian, give us an example. You as a syndicator, you work with investors. Tell us, how do you safeguard investor capital when someone is looking to invest with you? Uh, what steps do you take to minimize an investor's risk and try to keep their money safe? That's a really good question. Um, you know, the first I think it comes down to uh, making good decisions and underwriting properly. And good decisions actually kind of circles back to uh, my other example that I had forgotten. I remembered what it was. So we were looking at this deal uh, where a newer sponsor had acquired the property and uh, they financed the deal with 10 year debt and their business plan, 10 year fixed rate financing, and their business plan was to acquire it, fix up the outsides and then resell it. And they wanted to do all that in like a two or three year time period. And when they, uh, when they went to sell, they found that the yield maintenance penalty on their 10 year fixed rate financing was gonna cost them over $2 million and so they had this great flip basically where they were able to kind of get in and get out really quickly and deliver a, an incredible result to their investor. And they, it was impaired by, you know, a $2 million tax on their profits from a yield maintenance penalty. So it's just, you know, where making a bad decision and financing can really hurt the performance of a deal. So when people are looking at potential opportunities to invest in and somebody says, this is a, three-year plan or a five-year plan. And oh, by the way, we got all the time in the world because we put a 10-year fixed rate debt on it. So you don't have to worry about interest rates. You do have to worry about yield maintenance and yield maintenance is enormously expensive. And it's just a mistake to finance a short-term business plan with long-term financing. Now it's not dumb to do a short-term business plan with long-term financing that you can get out of and those financing packages are out there where you don't have to pay yield maintenance to exit. Um, so again, just uh, you know, forming your capital stack 
properly, giving yourself plenty of runway on your debt so you don't run up against a, a maturity issue, but also so that you don't run up against the yield maintenance issue is extremely important. So how do you safeguard your investor's capital? You, you form your capital stack properly. Uh, you don't over leverage. You don't over underwrite, especially meaning you don't underwrite to perfection, which means uh, assume that the market is going to have some hiccups. Assume that the market's going to have some level of an adverse cycle and build that into your numbers and make sure that you're still under your break-even ratio when you do that. Raise plenty of upfront capital, both for your renovation and for your capital reserves. I mean, how often do you see a deal where uh, they're gonna fund the renovation out of cash flow and then the cash flow goes away. Now they can't even renovate uh, and they make no distributions to investors because they didn't raise enough money. So not raising enough money is actually a threat to the money you raised. So that's another way. And I'm, I'm sure the list goes on and on. <laughs> and then oftentimes in that scenario, Brian, doesn't the syndicator often have to go back to the investors and ask them for more money? Yeah, they got two choices, right? I mean, they're, they're either making a capital call and they're saying, okay, everybody, I know you committed to a hundred grand, but now you got to make it 125 because, you know, we, we undershot it. So everybody mm -hmm. has to send in more money or they could say, we're going to go raise another $2 million and we're going to dilute everybody. So now the return you thought you were going to get is that much less because it's going to be shared with more people that are coming in to save the investment. So yeah, it's absolutely true. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that and I've heard from, you know, horror stories from other investors about, you know, how the uh, sponsors didn't raise enough equity. I've counseled people, you know, I've had people send me their, um, their offering circular say, Hey, I want to do this deal. You know, can you look at it and tell me what you think? And I told this one guy, I said, you're not raising enough money. And uh, he was a friend of a friend and I'm like, you know, you're not raising enough money for this deal. So, uh, I go to a conference about six months ago and I ran into the guy. I didn't know who he was because we didn't meet face to face, but you know, we got in this conversation, found out we had this mutual friend and he goes, wait, I know you, you looked at my deal. I'm like, I did. And he's like, yeah, you told me I wasn't raising enough money. I said, well, that sounds like something I would say. <laughs> and he goes, you know what? You were right. I had to go raise more money. So <laughs> you just, uh, you just never know. That's awesome that other syndicators come to you and ask you for your advice and kind of look up to you uh, in this industry. That's great. Yeah, I don't know why they do that, but uh, you know, I, I guess uh, maybe he thought I'd I'd have some value to add. Hopefully, telling him to to raise more money added some value. <laughs> well, you gave him the right answer. I guess that's all that matters. Okay, Brian, just to wrap this whole thing up here, uh, any last words of wisdom? Geez, last words of wisdom. I would say, uh, you know, if you're, if you're an investor looking to invest in real estate syndication, sponsor, sponsor selection is critical. Deal selection is secondary. Um, you know, if, if you're uh, working with a good sponsor, they should be bringing you good deals. Uh, so, you know, always take the time to vet who you're working with and, uh, and pick the right operating partners. Uh, outside of that, I would say... Um, uh, just uh, double check all the underwriting, talk to, uh, uh, talk to referrals and references and, and, uh, and, and make the right call. If you're a syndicator, uh, don't write, underwrite to perfection. Uh, don't always assume you have to be the highest bidder uh, and always put your investors first. Love it. And make sure that you get a driver's license before you hop in that car and decide to take that car for a drive.
That's great advice. Yeah, at least get a driver's license. Just do at that. At least, at least do that. That's right. Do everybody else on the road a favor. <laughs> well, that was awesome, Brian. I really enjoyed that. I thought that was an awesome interview. Again, you gave, you gave some great advice and tips and insight from all your years of experience, you know, talking about markets and, you know, do's and don'ts and, and pitfalls that investors should watch out for. Uh, I think the audience will love this information. And if people want to check you out and learn more about you, uh, what's your website? Where, where can they go to, to find out more about you? Yeah, the best place to go is uh, to uh, our website is praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. That's short for Praxis Capital. Of course, also on Bigger Pockets, I'm uh, I'm found there quite frequently, as you mm. as you well know, and uh, tend to uh, you know respond and answer questions as I can on that site. And I've written a few articles for the Bigger Pockets blog and been on their podcast three times. So uh, you know, certainly there's ways to to reach out to me there and and uh, happy to interact with you guys. So I appreciate you having me on. You got it, Brian. Hey, the pleasure was all on this end. And um, yeah, thanks again for coming on to the show and, and you know, giving us your time and, and all your, your great tips and advice. And hopefully we can have you back on the show um, you know, again real soon. That yeah, sounds good. I'm game. Yeah. Let's do it. Cool. Well, all right, everybody. Um, see you next time. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Tune in and, uh, yeah, check out Brian and uh, reach out to the man and do business with him. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Passive Investing School. Be sure to check out PassiveInvestingSchool.com to help you with your journey of being a successful passive investor.